tonight on Arena. Ruddy Doyle's version of Peter Pan at the Gate Theatre and Uti Lemper talks to us about her upcoming show at the National Concert Hall. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Grammy-nominated German singer Ute Lemper makes a welcome return to the National Concert Hall this December to pay homage to one of her enduring inspirations, the incomparable Marlene Dietrich. Rendezvous with Marlene offers a mix of monologue and song based on a three-hour conversation between Marlene and Ute in Paris three decades ago. Ute Lemper, globally recognised, of course, as one of the foremost interpreters of the works connected with the Weimar Republic. She's won acclaim globally as a performer, recording artist and actor. And this year, she released a new album, Time Traveller, and her much-anticipated autobiography of the same name. Delighted to be joined on the programme by Uti Lemper this evening. Um, I, this conversation that you had with Marlene Dietrich, I'm sure you've spoken about it many times, Uti. You were you were yeah. a 24 year old who was getting much acclaim for you know in, in many comparisons were made between you and Marlene Dietrich in 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 I think in the style of performance you were embarrassed by this you wrote Marlene Dietrich a letter she phoned you back yes 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 hello hello my dear yes this indeed happened in the year 1987 and I was in Paris being the uh, Parisian Sally Bowles in the production of Cabaret and the Mogador Theatre. <laughs> and Marlene was in her apartment alone. She hadn't left the house for more than a decade. And uh, yes, this rendezvous with Marlene <laughs> happened. <laughs> so that was the rendezvous yeah. that is that is the basis of, of this show. How much talking did you get to do in that three-hour conversation, mm-hmm. Ute? Well, um, she, of course, uh, reached out to me uh, just because she wanted also to speak German with me. She missed the language. She had heard about me. She had le- uh, read in the newspapers and I, I had uh, gotten the French Moliere Award, Theatre Award. And uh, so she had heard about this young uh, German that was uh, making some <laughs> ruckus there in Paris. And um, But she most of all wanted to reach out to me to speak about her story, her German story, the story that she missed her country. She was not welcome back after the war. She wanted to give concerts with Bert Bacharach in 1960 in Germany, and she was called a traitor. Now, this is based on the fact that she is a German expatriate when after the Blue Angel 1928, she went to America to start a Hollywood career. And um, she um, fought against Nazi Germany as an American soldier during the war. And uh, now now this is like a a really strange, confused story, but uh, really um, shows you how um, how how deep embedded this whole Nazi time was, um, you know, through the last century in Germany. So she came back in the 60s and they threw her out of the country. And she said, but and she said to me on the telephone, you know, they didn't want me back. Don't you know that they didn't want me? Die wollten mich doch nicht. And then she kind of like laid this wave mm. and cloud of melancholy and bitterness through the telephone over me. And at the time I was young, I wasn't really sure um, how deep it must have been and this rejection must have felt for her. But over the decades, I really thought this is an incredible story to be told. And she only came back um, and she said to me on the phone, I want to come back to Germany dead. Uh, 
She wanted to be buried in Berlin uh, next to her mother on the cemetery. And this indeed happened in 1992. She died and she was, and this was the moment. And here comes the crazy story. And that's the Einstein time fault. At this moment, when she came back, uh, uh, passed away, I was the Lola in the Blue Angel, wow. her <laughs> row in Berlin in the Theater des Westens. And I was at the funeral and yet still the Germans hadn't gotten over it. They still were twisted and conflicted in their um, in their appreciation of her. That is extraordinary. I mean, perhaps one could possibly understand that in 1960s, in, in, the, in the 1960s, when Marlene Dietrich went back to Germany at that time, the war would still have been very fresh in many people's memories. There would have been many people alive who had fought in the war. And you say, well, that's that's very close to it. 1990, I would have thought at that point in time, yeah. I mean, the Berlin Wall has fallen at this stage. Yeah. Uh, I know yeah. that the unification of East and West is 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 far from over in, in that respect. And that, yeah. you know, it will take yeah. time for all of yeah. those wounds to heal. Mm-hmm. But there was there were still protests against her, very much against well, her in the nineteen nineties. Well, only from the right wing people, mm. you know, some neo Nazis and some other confused people, but uh, not the general population. But they were they didn't know. They were still confused whether to embrace her, to love her, to honor her. She certainly in Germany didn't get this incredible admiration, appreciation that she got in England. The British people loved her. The Irish people loved her. The French people loved her. There, I mean, she was loved everywhere mm. in the world. And she gave concerts everywhere, including Israel, South America, Asia, Russia at the time. And yet the only country that was, uh, you know, couldn't. Yeah. For some reason, love her and admire her was the Germany at the time. Yes, and it, it uh, the, still at her funeral was was uh, twisted. But then it took ten years more till the year two thousand and one, and that was her one hundredth birthday, and that's when the page had turned. Um, the Germans had made her the status symbol of Berlin. There's a Molyneux Dietrich place next to the Potsdamer Platz and every hotel bar is selling Molyneux Dietrich uh, champagnes mm. and. Uh, coffee a la Marlene and blah 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 so now you know she was the very much needed one big status symbol of Berlin (laughs) too late late for her yeah absolutely and and what a shame that is I want to if if you'll forgive me for playing a little bit of Marlene singing first because I do want to get to your singing and how you do the the songs in your own show but I want to go Mm. I suppose I think this is from that 1960s period Um, I'm going to well you'll know the song when you hear it many people will recognise the song a Pete Seeger song but they might be surprised to hear Marlene Dietrich singing it Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago And that is the voice of Marlene Dietrich there and uh, that version of Where Have All the Flowers Gone. Uti Lemper, I can hear a kind of, I can almost hear your smile as as you're listening (laughs) to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting because that campfire guitar in the background is so 60s, right? Yes. I mean, she she has uh, such a cool speaking voice and you could imagine her like just being accompanied by a piano with very open chords, very modern somehow. But it's this campfire guitar in the back. <laughs> but yeah, well, that that's an important song. It was written in the 60s, of course, uh, 
and uh, as a anti-war song. And yes, I would say, listen, very, um, very, mm. very important nowadays to still sing that song. When yeah. people, when will they ever learn? And yeah, they it's, just it's, don't. It's as relevant today, as you say, as as it, as it was, unfortunately, in the 60s and back mm. before that as well. Is that the song that actually opens your own show, Rendezvous with Marlene? No, no, no. I opened the show with the song Falling in Love Again from the Blue Angel. That's Frederick Hollander. Falling in love again, never wanted to. That one is also very known. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Um, Well, I, I wanted to speak a little bit about how you've gone about arranging the songs for this performance. You have an album associated with the with the concert as well. It, mm. It's what we hear on the album. Is that what we will hear in the National Concert Hall on Saturday night? Well, this album is a very big double album, huge 20 songs, mm. and it has also orchestra on it, really lovely orchestrations. And um, I you know you will hear a much purer version with my uh, four musicians, on stage, uh, more transparent and um, not as produced as as it is on the album. Uh, The album is really a a very glamorous album, but um, you know, the stage performance, uh, I go very, I really crawl into her skin and I really try to incarnate her um, her um, inner life. Uh, The broken older woman sitting in her apartment, lonely, left and uh, quite chaotic in her uh, apartment filled with stuff and uh, the film reels under the bed hidden away of her fam- favorite movies and and she actually has my Kurt Weill record on her on her um, living room table mm. uh, because it came out my first record came out 1986 like right before that and uh, she's she was on uh, Moet Chandon she drank and drank Moet Chandon <laughs> champagne and uh, she, well, she was definitely um, mm. very uncensored and uh, intense in that way that she was trapped in this apartment with all her memories and all her anxiety at the same time. So I'm trying to channel this and it, it really have to say I, it's so profound and I I very much enjoy doing this. I feel like a universe mm. of, um, um, of life and um, politics and uh, courage and glamour and uh, chutzpah and, um, and, and and sense of humor, all of that that she had. Yes. And I, um, I, she, just, she's I, talking to the young Uta. <laughs> well, as, as you describe what you're doing uh, on stage, obviously we know you as a singer, but the, the actor in you is very alive as you describe that character of Marlene Dietrich. You you mentioned earlier on about her being both bitter and melancholic in that long telephone call uh, that you had with her back in the 1980s. And here you are talking about her, you know, never having left the, uh, the apartment for, for so long. What kept her inside? I mean, what, what kept her away from human interaction in that way? She was sick and tired of being Marlene Dietrich. She didn't want to show her aged face. And uh, she knew that she was, uh, she had cultivated a very stylized image of herself, uh, perfectly beautiful, perfect angles of shadows and lights, uh, very artificially created through like the studio atmosphere. And she was not, um, you know, a star for reality, for 
for the for the day to day um, wrinkled, uh, um, honest, uh, unvain uh, mm. uh, person. Uh, she she was a stylized image, and she couldn't. She was tired of keeping up with it. But but I heard. Um, I met Billy Wilder in the '80s in Los Angeles, and he was telling me a lot about his beloved Marlene. She, of course, did many many movies with him, and she said she was actually a very uh, down to earth woman uh, off the camera. She she loved to cook, and she was wearing her apron. She cleaned and she cooked, and she um, she loved to be just like actually a very very casual and and yeah. off the stage, but but when she got older, I think you know she knew how how cool people can be, and uh, when she was going on tour in the fifties already with with Backrock, she already had uh, left the um, the Hollywood behind her because her her face was already now almost in the fifties. She was already too old for the close up, as she said, <laughs> and so she tricked on stage, and that's when she invented the famous tape <laughs> to tape up a. Anything that wasn't uh, that was um, not defying grav- <laughs> gravity was being taped up and uh, pulled back in a, in a way that she well, could at least look good for a sh- photo yeah. shoot. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you're talking there about that. There was the I suppose the the external Marlene Dietrich, the the the, the person that everybody fell in love with I guess when they saw her on on the screen so many people fell in love with her just from that that image alone do you think she, uh, she has suffered um through the years by this kind by that externalization of her it, within this show are you trying to get at maybe a side of Marlena Dietrich that we haven't seen before that we haven't heard before very much I'm trying to um very much uh, crawl into her humanity into um, the way that she remembers her life, um, that that she got involved and in also into politics. The only connection to her outside world was the telephone in those years. And she was um, nonstop on the telephone, not only speaking to whatever neighbors and old friends, Billy Wilder, um, but she also spoke to Gorbachev, to Margaret Thatcher. She spoke to Ronald Reagan, and she had something to say to everyone. You know, she said to stop this Cold War and mm. uh, this uh, proliferation. That things have to change, and you need to talk. And um, she, yes, she was. She was involved, and she, as you know, we know about her that she was um, very emancipated for her time, way ahead. She always had leveled with a man. She spoke uh, what she thought, and she was educated. She could be emancipated, and she uh, didn't take at all on the the role uh, play for a woman. She asked the gender question more than a hundred years ago in Weimar Berlin. She was wearing trousers, cutting her hair short, together with the women of the Bauhaus. She was bisexual extremely polygamous. I had many, many lovers, women and men. And she was just way ahead of her time, the way mm. she uh, defined herself. And and yes, even in the older older years on the telephone, she was still, you know, if she wanted to bossy and she told her opinion to whoever needed to hear it in, in her mind. Yeah. And, and no bad thing that we could do with her. Um, we could do with her making a few of those phone calls at this very moment in time <laughs> to world oh, leaders. Yeah. No doubt about yeah. that. Just one thing before before I, I finish up and I'm going to finish up with with falling in love again and your version of it, uh, Uti. But before we get uh, there, um, I, I think um, Marlena gave you advice in terms of keeping your own uh, personal life private and, you know, let Uti Lemper, the performer, 
be the person who speaks to me and the person that we that we get to know. But to keep your private life private, how difficult has that been when it comes to the writing of your autobiography, Time Traveller? Mm. Uh, well, it's not out in English yet. So <laughs> unfortunately, for now, we have the German version, the Spanish and the Italian version. And mm. I'm working on the English version. Um, it's it's a uh, it was wonderful to write about my life. It's not I'm not private. I'm not uh, doing any dirty dishes, uh, speaking about my <laughs> lovers. No, just really I speak about the human journey that it took. Uh, the, the 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 biggest challenge for me always was to be a mother. I have four children, and to be an artist and to uh, split my day into uh, two different um, realities. And I both I'm a, a, a passionate mother, and um, yet I'm also a passionate artist and it w- that was a very difficult balance for a very long time now my oldest son is uh, 29 my youngest is still only a 13 so um i have um th- that was an interesting journey for mm. me to uh to 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 try to do my best there also of course uh, the experience of loss of survival of uh, um uh, sadness and injuries um from stage from dancing from um broadway from the west end from uh, the recordings that I did and just like the, uh, the, the the wonderful challenges and adventures that I was able to uh, live through but at the same time had to master um, you know just yeah. uh, uh, deceptions and uh, disappointments and uh, keep 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 it rolling and and life uh, grows in proportion to its courage i always said and you always have to push the boundaries try to um um go out of the box out of the normal and just um uh, re emancipate yourself also as a woman all over again and almost every day from from this and this to to really get to this point that you can find a certain peace inside of yourself and fulfillment and my journey is kind of almost inspirational and um and and that's what i try to put down in the book well i hope when it is translated into english and i get a chance to read <laughs> yeah. it that you will come on and talk to me again about oh, you r- r- rather than <laughs> just and there's no harm no problem talking about marlena dietrich wonderful person oh. to speak about but i'd like to hear more about you and I hope we will get a chance oh, to do that you. in in the coming at, in, yeah. whenever that English translation finally makes it uh, onto our bookshelves. <laughs> yeah. I love that saying yeah. that you just life grows in proportion to its courage. I'm gonna, gonna remember yeah. that one. Will you t- will you talk me into your version then of falling in love again? One of the things I love about this version from the album uh, is the fact that it starts in in German. That mix of German and English, very important, I would have thought, in Marlene Dietrich's life. Mm. What does it give mm. to you as a performer, you know, shifting the languages like that and singing this mm. in German must have a special resonance? Well, it is originally, of course, in German mm. and by uh, by her friend Friedrich Hollander, written in 1928. And and as much as she does, did uh, she he immigrated to America to become a composer for Hollywood, Jewish Berlin uh, man, like like hundreds of of the other uh, Jewish um, artists in the in the 20s that left. And it's um, I, I think it's um, bringing the song uh, really to to its root, to where it came from, but also at the same time see what happened uh, in the American English uh, translation version which became suddenly then much lighter mm. much more um, dancey but uh, doesn't have the heaviness of thought I would say 
uh, like the German words have, because there's always a twist in the German word. There's always so much at the same time, so much sadness and uh, and uh, and and joy. But but the sadness is, is something that sometimes in the German version is much more. Uh, get, gets clearer, yeah. and it isn't wiped away by the pleasant uh, English adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we listen to your version yeah. from from the album, which, of course, as you say, is a kind of an extended version, if you like, of the show that you're performing on Saturday evening, uh, the t- December mm-hmm. the 2nd, at the National Concert Hall. Uh, an absolute joy to speak with you this evening, Uta. Thank you so much for being with uh, us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. That's Uta Lemper. And Uta will be, as I said, in the National Concert Hall uh, for her concert on this coming Saturday, December the 2nd. And no doubt you will hear this song. Ich bin von Kopf bis Fuß auf Liebe Eingestellt, das ist meine Welt und sonst gar nichts. There you have it. You see, there is so much sadness in that German uh, version at the opening of Falling in Love Again. Uti Lemper, that is from her album Rendezvous with Marlene and, of course, her performance, the stage show, as she described to us, not with the, the version that you heard there, but with the paired back orchestra, paired back quartet that will be playing with her on the night. Rendezvous with Marlene is at the National Concert Hall in Dublin, December the 2nd. That's this coming Saturday evening. NCH.ie Well, if Christmas is a time for returning to childhood, then what better story to crystallise the mood than J.M. Barry's classic tale, Peter Pan, which in fact started life as a play at the Duke of York Theatre in London called Peter Pan or the Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up. And so, after journeying through novels and films, Peter Pan is back on stage, this time at the Gate Theatre in Dublin, to be precise, in a new version set close to home adapted by none other than Roddy Doyle stars Liam Bixby as Peter Claire Dunn in a gender-swapped dual role of, as Captain Hook and Mrs. Darling. Helen Meany has been to see Peter Pan and she joins me now. I suppose The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up is, is really, for me, is the summary of this story rather than Peter Pan. That title never really did it for me. Um, just remind us of The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, which is a much better t- tale in my mind. Yes, yeah, so the boy, Peter Pan, is uh, a strange, mysterious boy who is uh, has sort of an affinity with the birds and natural mm. world, and but he's not he's not a fairy and he's not quite human, um, and he comes to visit a family, uh, the Darling family, uh, late at night when the three Darling children are asleep and their parents have gone out from their. North inner city Dublin home in this in yeah. this case, uh, presumably Mountjoy Square or somewhere around there, and he uh, comes in the window. He comes back to uh, retrieve his shadow, which he'd left on his last visit, and the children wake up, and he's you know he's really drawn to them, and they become yeah. very friendly. Wendy, the very uh, sweet and feminine Wendy, uh, sews on his shadow, and then he persuades them all to fly off with him to where he's off to Never Never Land. Yeah. Um, 
and which is a place where nobody will grow old and time it's outside of human time and it's Chirin a place and we have it yeah, we've, we've one of those exactly. ourselves we do we do so it's a it's a world of a place mm. of, of great of make believe yeah and th- and that kind of crossing of both worlds is is so vital to the piece in many ways and the shadow the, the story of the show because I mean at a certain age kids just are fascinated by the fact that they have a shadow and yes. you know and running and trying to catch it and all of those things there's such there's such fun to be had in that such but fun. as you mentioned there we, we normally would be in Edwardian London but here we are in in Dublin are we in, in Dublin of today? No no we're in Dublin of the early 20th century around 1910 so mm. it's keeping that Edwardian Feel. period but, yeah. uh, but it's it's Dublin pre- well, pre everything that was about to happen the decade yes. after uh, the rising and so on, but also pre pre First World War. And so the darlings are reasonably comfortably off family, but not wealthy, though they have a servant, which is a well, I was a bit surprised by, but um, they are, um, I suppose, prosperous, uh, aspiring yeah. middle class. And are we are we in the Dublin vernacular, or are yes. we? Yes, yeah, so we very, are. You know, very much uh, Dublin, strong du- inner city Dublin. Mm. But but you know, nothing else really. We the the Dublin context is not. It's not hugely fleshed out, nor is it very important yeah. to this version, because Roddy Doyle, um, his adaptation really sticks very, very closely to the original. To the to, to the to the plot to of the, the play. To, yeah. the, to the plot of the play initially, uh, originally. Uh, I would beg your pardon. However, Captain Hook and Mrs. Darling. This is a this is a significant change. Uh, Claire Dunn in that dual role. Yeah, Claire Dunn is excellent as Captain Hook, um, and she and she she has a fantastic costume. She's like a, she's kind of like a glam rock star uh, with just with kind of uh, flowing flares and you know very very glamorous sort mm. of deep magenta trouser suit and and uh, a cape and so on. And she plays it with uh, she's obviously having a great time. Um, she plays it though without any menace whatsoever. So the pirates in Neverland are not threatening. I mean, right. they really yeah. aren't. There's no sense of danger. So, which really... Well, the young me was very frightened of Captain Hook <laughs> yes, and, yes. and the pirates I, around no, him. No, exactly. I think so. That's really odd that, you know, in these, uh, in the sort of contest between Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, his his gang, mm. um, and Captain Hook's pirates, there's there's really, it's really not scary enough. So she's, she's got, uh, Claire has, Claire Dunn has a great sense of swagger and glamour. She's almost like a pantomime prince, you know, that played by mm. the woman, that traditional yeah. way. Um, and she's, and she's being wheeled in a bathtub across the stage and there's a rubber duck. So it's all played for laughs. Which but, uh, definitely takes away some of the power of the threat. Right. So the threat and the menace is not there. But does that does that lighter touch, I suppose? And I mean, even as you describe the, the, the bath going across the stage with the rubber duck and the pirates pushing her or, or whatever. Yeah. I can see the, the, the fun in that. Which there is would, fun. Which Absolutely. would make for family entertainment as Christmas. Is that at Christmas? Is that the route that they've gone? Is it more down the let's let's go for the. The family audience and not be frightened than the, the little yes. ones. I mean, I do think children can enjoy a, a bit of a bit of danger and a bit of risk, mm. you know. And and it does actually really detract from the drama if if uh, the pirates are because there are, isn't enough at stake. Are, there's nothing at stake. No, so you could almost have this, the lost boys and the pirates could almost swap places, and and nothing would, you know. It's, so I think that it it there's this, a lack of momentum and drama there, even though the bathtub and so on is very charming, and they're the they're the best scenes and. 
you know, the children in the audience were enjoying that, but they weren't they weren't on the edge of their seat or anything like that, you know. But it's interesting, the casting of Mrs. Darling, sorry, Mrs. Darling doubling up as, as Captain, Captain Hook, because it's normally Mr. Darling that uh, does that double. Isn't and it? I think the effect of that is to complicate it a bit so that the, the the play idealizes Mrs. Darling as the perfect saintly mother, but if we think that the, her, the, the saintly mother's alter ego is is mm, the is the is dastardly Captain Hook, Captain Hook yeah. it just makes it the the co-role of the of the, the sort of question of motherhood in the play a bit more. Um, ambivalent and complicated. So did that aspect of it work for you then? Yeah, I thought so. It added interest. I mean, because there's this this emphasis on Wendy as the the eldest daughter Mm. being, becoming a mother to the lost boys and to Peter, which doesn't, you know, nearly 120 years later, it really doesn't sit well that Mm. just because she's the girl, she's the Yeah, that she should be the mother, yeah. And that she's Peter Pan's mother. And particularly when she has romantic kind of feelings for Peter, that just makes it all a little bit Mm. odd. So so the fact that we have a a less than perfect Mrs. Darling, perhaps in her fantasy as playing a pirate, just makes it a bit more, it makes it a bit more interesting, I think. What about Tinkerbell, by the way? Yeah, Tinkerbell has shrunk. I mean, Tinkerbell in this is a... She's tiny anyway. She's a tiny, (laughs) she's a tiny puppet. Yeah, Um, all so, right, so she's, we, we have an onstage, very agile um, puppeteer uh, who's, you know, really well choreographed, mm. but she's moving the tiny, tiny Tinkerbell is actually barely, barely visible from the, towards the back of the stalls. So she's a bit too small to have much impact. And we don't really get as much of Tinkerbell as in other... And is she voiced versions. then? Do we do we hear yeah, a voice? We get we get musical cues and mm. yes, but it's her her role is reduced really, and there's possibly not enough of her fairy dust as well being scattered around. All the right, production. so you missed you missed yeah. you missed a scary Captain Hook, and you wanted a, a bit a, more magic, a bit bit more magic from from the Tinkerbell yes, side of things, more sense of illusion and transformation. You, you mentioned musical cues there. How important is music within the production? And I think there's quite a lot of movement within it as well. There's a lot of a lot of movement, and so the when when the Lost Boys and Peter Pan finally get to to have their sort of battle, it's a, it's sort of hand to hand combat mm. with Hook and the pirates. It's presented almost as a dance in that they're they're in duets and and they're spinning and they're doing cart cartwheels and flipping upside down, and it's actually beautifully choreographed. But there's no again, I'm just to say that there's nothing at stake there. Yeah. Um, and the movement director is a really well known uh, aerialist, and so. Uh, Jonah McGreevy is the movement director from the Lucy Smokes um, company of aerial performers. So is that physical side of and it, is that is that um, impressive to watch? Well, I was a bit surprised because of his involvement that there wouldn't be more flying of the actors uh, like out mm. into the auditorium or across the stage or even using, you know, trapeze or ropes. There's none of that. So when the children fly away to Neverland at, out the window and across the night sky, in this in the play they really don't fly in this production they sort of jump in the air and then they run so this so that's a that's a bit of a loss it sounds like you had a kind of a mixed night then uh, at the theater did you i did i mean i admired you know that a lot of the actors were very young and making you know you know pretty early stage and and i admired the energy and so on but it's it it lacked drama and where's where's that from is that in the writing is that in the production it's in the direction and also i think in the writing which isn't really funny enough and so it's not quite panto and it's not a musical there's no sing there are no songs in it mm. so you're relying a lot on on what's actually happening the stagecraft and that really 
wasn't transformational or transporting enough. I think to capture this sense of children flying away to Neverland, which is a you know a beautiful illusion. Um, so we just it just didn't fly. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the, but the idea of the the Captain Hook, Mrs. Darling double work that yeah, was I an thought, important I aspect. That was of it. one one clever um, innovation. Right. Okay. Okay. Runs through until the fourteenth of January. Is it is a good Christmas fair for all of that? It's it's reasonable Christmas fair. Reasonable Christmas fair, not <laughs> I, the full turkey and ham. No, no, not no, no, no cranberries. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's uh, 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 Peter Pan Git presentation of Peter Pan, new version by Roddy Doyle, which runs at the Gate the Gate Theatre right through the Christmas period. In fact, until January the fourteenth. GateTheatre.ie for full details. Ronnie O'Sullivan is regarded by many as the most successful snooker player of all time but for most of his life he's had to deal with the pressure of success along with many personal challenges and the pressure he puts on himself. The Edge of Everything is a new documentary produced by David Beckham's company Studio 99 is coming out this week on Prime uh, Video and it's at selected cinemas nationwide. Damien O'Mara has been watching it for us and he's with me in, in studio right now. For th- for those who don't know who Ronnie O'Sullivan is within the, the snooker world, how would how would you define his role within that mm. um, group of elite players? I think he is widely and rightly described as the greatest player of all time. He's won seven world championships. He's tied with Stephen Hendry on that mantle. Um, snooker's world championship came into the format we would know it as now in 1969. So they call this the modern era. He and Hendry have the most. He's won more ranking tournaments than Hendry. But he is snooker's poster boy. He is the... Can you call him the sex symbol? He's definitely the rock star of snooker. He's the one who gets people on their seats. He's the one who excites the audiences even to this day. And, and in terms of the style of play and, you know, like Hurricane Higgins, it was, you know, the, the hurricane going around yeah. the place. He, it, it, O'Sullivan is referred to as the rocket. Yeah, he's a combination of everything. He is renowned as, he is the record for the fastest 147, the maximum. Um, mm. You know, he, he, he's mercurial. I think that's probably the best way to describe him. You never quite know which O'Sullivan is going to turn up. When he's in the zone, when he's on form, he is the hurricane ten times over. When he's not, he can be a little bit more car crash. But he is uh, he's unpredictable, to say the least, which is, I think, part of the great mystique that surrounds him and the intrigue that people have around him. Yeah, and it's part of the fascination that, that it comes across in this this documentary. That he, And he's so hard on himself. But let, let's go back to the beginning um, like he was playing what age did he start well, like playing he, snooker at the important thing and I think you'd agree with this having watched it this is not a documentary about snooker which is the most important thing to say I found this no. was massively no, you, you don't even have to you, know you don't even know how, 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 the how much is the brown ball worth you don't <laughs> no, have to know nothing. any of that yeah. this is this is a look inside the head yeah. of a guy who has climbed Everest and is still not happy so he started off if you go back through some of the newspaper archives, he would have been seen as a prodigy at the age of, say, seven. I think he had his first century break or maximum around the age of 13. You know, and hold on a little minute and think of the size of a snooker table, even if you know, like, it's a big table. Yeah. And, and even the size of the queue, how he... 
was playing at that age is already amazing in my mind. But that wouldn't be unusual. Like if, yeah. if you have Ken, if you were to get Ken Doherty into this studio, Ken Doherty and a litany of snooker players will talk Started about very young. having a like having an old USA biscuit box that the snooker <laughs> table arrived for Christmas and you got the box of USA biscuits, <laughs> turned it upside down and stood on it in order to be able to reach the table. And that's evident <laughs> in this. There is yeah. so much footage of him, like family footage. And um, he was obviously... I won't say a big name, but he was obviously a story of novelty around the London area and around that part of the world at a very young age, because there is quite a lot of footage and yeah. even news archive of this kid who obviously is destined to be the next big thing. Yeah, uh, I, that, well, he, I, he was certainly at that time. Then we have to talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan Sr. This, yeah. this, this is a whole documentary in this guy as well. And... um. We'll come to this in a second. Ronnie O'Sullivan Sr. is nearly more important in this documentary to me than Ronnie O'Sullivan Jr. Mm. because it is the pressure that Ronnie O'Sullivan Jr. feels to fulfil the ambition that his father had for him, which is the line that has gone through his entire career. So his father, by his own admission, was a bit of a wheeler dealer in the West End of London back in, say, the late 70s, early 80s. He ran a he, sex shop. He ran a chain of sex shops and was chain a of multi-millionaire off the back of sex shops. And the, the, there's a very interesting line at one point, and I'm conscious that it's 12 minutes to eight on a Monday evening. Uh, he talks about, like, the, he, there's a throwaway line about the psyche of, I knew what people wanted and I yeah. knew what was going to bring people in through the door. Mm. So the father ends up being a multimillionaire, uses his largesse to buy a house which has a significant garden at the back of it. He's not interested in the garden, he's interested in the space it allows him to build a snooker room for Ronnie Jr. to basically have all of the time he needs yeah. to be. Um, he also talks at one point, doesn't the father, about you know when he knew that when Ronnie was off playing snooker in the snooker halls, it was like sending him to crash. Yeah, because someone else would look after him <laughs> along the way. That, that was an that, interesting That was child concept. mining in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so um, it, the story develops and, and anyone who has followed Ronnie O'Sullivan's career will be aware that the, the story that follows him around time and time again, the kind of the genesis story for a lot of the tabloids mm. for which he was such fodder for the years was the fact that his father went to prison. His father was convicted for murder, uh, killed an associate of the Cray brothers, one of the drivers for, I think, another brother of the Crays. And basically his father served time for murder. Um, the very last thing, his, and this is in the documentary, his father said as he was being led away uh, down, you know, the steps. Yeah, let's the, actually, I'll we'll, uh, let Ronnie O'Sullivan say what he said going down the CIM yeah, because we, uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan Jr. Because we have the we have the clip here from the documentary, and this is Ronnie O'Sullivan describing the moment his mother phoned him up. I think was he in, where was he at the time? In, in was he in Singapore? He was, was yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was Singapore. He was in, and and he, she said, "You have to, you have to be told because I, I think he was involved in a tournament yeah. at the time, and she obviously doesn't want to throw something yeah, into she the didn't mix want that's to, going to knock him off." But the head. manager said, "You have to tell him, and you have to." you have to tell him now so here's how uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan describes uh, describes that moment when, when he was told uh, that that his father was going to prison nothing can prepare you for that I couldn't make sense of any of it I just couldn't believe it we got the verdict through and then obviously everyone's frantic on the phone speaking to the solicitor what can we do now well, you know, what, what's the next steps and then she just said um she said, uh, you know, as as you were walking down, my dad is, he was like being carted off. He'd been sentenced. He just looked up to the woman and uh, he, you get a bit emotional sometimes, don't you? He just said, tell my boy to win. 
come up with to win. That's it. Thirty years ago. <laughs> That's uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan speaking about the moment that he heard that his father had been convicted of murder and was going to, going to prison. But imagine, that's what he said, Damien O'Mara. He said, tell my boy to win. Talk about, you know, get a psychologist well, to, to analyse that one for and, you. And, and this, is, this is what is the core tenant in this for me, is that you've now got the son, Ronnie Jr., his entire, not even his career, mm. his entire life, it appears to me, becomes built around, I need to fulfil what was my father's ambition for me. And the, the, O'Sullivan, Ronnie Jr., um, it's hard to distinguish between the Ronnies. O'Sullivan yeah. himself draws the distinction at one point that I'm a Tiger Woods, I'm a Serena Williams, I'm not someone who had massive natural talent, I'm someone who had a force who drove me to become what I became. The, so we have... Uh, there's a lot. The father features prominently, particularly in the first third. I would say of the but documentary. But only the father's voice. We, st- I think, we see one. We we see the father in in archive in in mm. you know family videos from from childhood period. But it is it's his voice only that we hear during the documentary, except for one moment at the end when we see and a picture. Of I him. wondered if it was an interview which was done for the documentary, or is it an archive interview that has existed somewhere? Yeah, previously. that's not clear. Because the one thing that is lacking for me is you. This is an hour and fifty minutes long. Um, it culminates with the 2022 World Championship. Um, it culminates with him basically reaching the pinnacle of the sport, becoming you know level with Stephen mm-hmm. Hendry in terms of World Championships. I think the one thing that's lacking in this is a right to respond from the father to say, here we have had your son who's spoken about all of the difficulties and the trauma that he's yeah. had in life, the weight he has carried psychologically. And he puts it down to the fact that he did all this to try and this pursuit of perfection to please his father. I think that was the one thing that was missing. And I would have liked to have seen the circle completed yeah. with the father's view on his reaction to the turmoil that in many ways you could say his son has carried yeah. as a result of him. Yeah, now we do hear from the mother and we see the mother and the mother speaks directly to camera at times as well. But I noticed that in, in the family footage from childhood, there's a little sister there. We hear nothing either from her or about her in and around his career. And the other issue is his mother also served a very brief sentence in jail for tax evasion. I think she served a year in jail um, and this has been well documented and Ronnie O'Sullivan has spoken about this in his autobiographies. He ended up taking, uh, well not custody, he ended up, his sister effectively ended up in his care. Mm. So at the time that he was travelling the world in the early 90s, he also had the burden of both parents being in prison and being the custodian effectively for his sister and that is completely deleted yeah. as a narrative. There is another side to Ronnie O'Sullivan that I must say I found this aspect fascinating. Um, I think of sportsmen and maybe you can and sportswomen and maybe you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this one. You kind of, the drive to win is vital and a really important part of what puts them out to do whatever particular sport they take part in. In the case of Ronnie O'Sullivan he says several times during this documentary I would much rather play well and lose yeah. than play badly and and win. A kind of a, I felt a kind of an artistic approach to what he was doing. You also get the sense in patches that he actually could hate snooker. Did you get yeah, that sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, and he does talk at one point about the best thing that I could ever have done after my father went to jail was to walk away from this. And you do get that sense that he doesn't really seem to know what his purpose is 
yeah. when it comes to and even there's, there's brilliant footage Steve Peters is renowned as one of sports leading psychologists he wrote The Chimp Paradox a couple yeah. of years ago and multiple sports people have spoken about Professor Steve Peters as being such an influential part in his career he's effectively O'Sullivan's wingman for the last latter stages of his careers yeah. and they have footage of the two of them having some fairly open and frank conversations and O'Sullivan asks at one point like I'm 46, 47 where do I go from here? How do I end this? What's mm. in the future? And Steve Peters quite understandably says, I can't tell you yeah. that. And O'Sullivan is like, but I need a purpose. I, I need to know what's going to happen so I can decide what I'm going to do. And it just seems to be this guy who is, like, I find him captivating. I, he is, I interviewed him once and we got very limited time with him. He is the one person more than any other sports person I would love to try and proper, get under the bonnet with. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that he knows himself what success is for him. Damien Hurst, who's uh, uh, a pal. Very good friend. Uh, uh, the artist, obviously. The, the person he turned to at one point yeah. when he needed to be brought to rehab. Yeah, and, and, and he said, yeah, I'll put you into rehab. But then he, they went and, and he, he decided to play the tournament and he went yeah. on and won the tournament, whatever that was. But however, Damien Hurst, it, it's it's Damien Hurst that gives us the idea of where where the documentary gets its title, The Edge of Everything. This is early on in the documentary, actually. Hurst is talking direct to camera and also it's cutting back and forth from, I think it's that moment when he did the fastest 147 yeah. break. It's happening. It's cutting in and out of this clip. But in order to have that kind of level of talent, you're not in a comfortable place and it creates, you know, massive highs and massive lows. Well, who wants to live there? No one. You know, especially as you get older, you go, I'd really like to regulate my life and just have OK. But I think Ronnie's much more on the edge than anyone I've ever met. It's the edge of risk, it's the edge of danger, of fear, of doubt, of surety, of confidence, of, you know, it's the edges of all those things, and that's where he lives. And it's like, you know, it's not a comfortable place to be, but it's really the only place for him to be. That's Damien Hurst uh, speaking as part of the documentary The Edge of Everything about the snooker player Ronnie O'Sullivan. Damien O'Mara has been watching it for us. A couple of things just before we put uh, Ronnie Wood was in there as, as well from the, from the Rolling Stones, another big yeah. pal is part of it. Um, the, there's a moment when he's playing Judd Trump when he did win that yeah. seventh world championship and he's mic'd very closely. So we hear in the documentary exactly what's gone through his head. You know, he's talking to himself and even when they embrace at yeah. the end of it, the conversation between the two of them. It's really intense. That's but it's phenomenal to yeah. get that because you never you often wonder what are they saying to each other. Yeah. We hear it clearly. So, so, so to explain, um, he, the World Championship final, he has so much pressure to emulate Stephen Hendry. He's twelve five up after the opening day. People say he's home and hose. He's going to yeah. win this with a session to spare, which is a phenomenal thing to do in snooker. Uh, it comes back to fourteen eleven, and they 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 cut brilliantly between yes. the television coverage and him in his dressing room. And Ken Doherty on commentary features at one point, and it's I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically Ronnie's coolness personified, and. Sullivan is in the horrors in the dressing room. I yeah. can't feel. I can't feel my arm. This everything's going wrong. And when he wins it, the embrace. Yeah. But it is the outpouring of emotion. Yeah. I get a sense if he had grabbed one of the ushers who was seeking people, you would have heard something similar yeah. because yeah. it was just a case of I have finally done what I needed to do. Uh, is this? Have they avoided 
hagiography in terms of presenting us because he's, he's a very complex man. Mm. It's a very complex man that we meet here. Uh, it's not it's not as sycophantic as some of the documentaries we've had in recent times were. Mm. I, I think my sense is it's quite an honest portrayal of how complex a character he is. The thing that I really took from it, I loved the fact that it really examines or forced me to think about the isolation of a sportsman who operates on his own. And here we have one of the most famous sports people in the world, the man who defines his sport. He's sitting on his own in the dining room of a hotel in Clandidno in Wales for a week. And then he goes to York to sit in a fairly similar hotel room. And all of this time that you spend on your own in your own head, where your biggest opponent is probably yourself as much as anything else. And is it is it worth watching? I think it is. I think it's not a snooker documentary. It's a it's a, it's a documentary about sports people. It's probably about fifteen or twenty minutes too long. There's a little bit where it dipped. Starts brilliantly, finishes brilliantly. Okay, we better not be fifteen or twenty seconds too too long either. Uh, but you're you're recommending it. It's available on Prime Video. Roddy, Roddy, Ronnie O'Sullivan, The Edge of Everything documentary that Damien O'Mara has been speaking to us about, and that is our lot for this Monday evening. Paula Shields, Liam Murphy, and Niall Fitzmaurice were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Gar Duffy was on sound this evening, and the program was produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night, seven o'clock once again here on RT Radio One. John Creedon will be with you after the news.